Joseph Kay. This is Michael Muth with Going Global International Interviews. Today we're speaking with Kevin Gingrich, who is the Director of Marketing Services at Bosch Restaurant's Linear Motion and Assembly Technology Division. Um, so, Kevin, let's just jump right into it. How would you describe Bosch Restaurant's Linear Motion and Assembly Technology product? What we make, Michael, are products that help other companies make their products better, faster, and cheaper. So, kind of sounds like BASF for manufacturers. Sort of. Uh, the, the Bosch Restaurant product range is enormous, um, from electric drives and controls that are the brains of a machine, and linear motion and assembly technologies that may be the, the bones and structure of a machine, to very powerful hydraulics that could be the power of the machine. Uh, and those products are often combined in different combinations to make automation systems of numerous types for companies around the world. Okay. So who specifically are your customers? Then? Are they just manufacturers or any specific manufacturers, wide variety of manufacturers? There are, there are several classes of companies that we work with primarily. Uh, one of them is machine builders, guys that are making metal cutting machines, uh, medical machines, plastic injection molding machines, packing, packaging machines, and what we would supply to those manufacturing companies or machine building companies are the parts that they use to construct their machines. So that's one class. Another class of customers, and probably one of the classes that my division of, of Bosch Rexroth works with, uh, maybe a little more than some of the others, are companies that are automating processes in their factory or who are looking for better manufacturing strategies. Because not all of the products that we sell are just for automation. Uh, our aluminum framing system, for example, and manual workstation products are used for lean manufacturing cells uh, for people who are doing manual assembly. And where we feel our strength lies is in offering whatever level of automation, from zero automation to full automation, we can to a company that needs that. Uh, and helping them understand what level of automation they need. Uh, you know, we believe that lean manufacturing and lean production are not just manual processes. I think there are many lean consultants that, uh, you know, have, that are maybe a little more dogmatic about lean than they should be, and believe that it's a manual process all the time that allows you to boil down whatever it is you're doing to the essence and eliminate waste um, in more places. We think that lean production is that, but that automation sometimes eliminates more waste than doing it manually. Um, and why do your customers buy Bosch restaurants as opposed to your competitors? In other words, what's your competitive advantage in the marketplace? First of all, it's high-quality products. Uh, you know, quality is a, is a kind of given, I think, these days in manufacturing technologies. But uh, Bosch, Rexroth, as part of Bosch, 
has a more than 100-year history in, in providing quality that is above and beyond what you can expect from most other companies. I think there is, beyond that, an applications, engineering, and consulting ability that we have as an engineering company that sets us apart from some of our competitors. Many of the companies that we, that we compete against are single product companies. They sell either linear motion or they sell pneumatics or they sell aluminum framing or they sell conveyors. Um, but very few of them sell the range of products that we do. And because of that, they're not asked to consult at the same level that we are often asked to consult at. So we're very helpful when asked to uh, work with a company to define a better process or a better way of building a machine or a way to, to get more performance out of, out of a system that requires a combination of technology. I think, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a fair argument, but I think the main difference really comes more in the marketing of the product. Because in a, you know, in a company that's a single product company, if you go to their website and you're looking for, say, linear motion, all you're going to find is linear motion. It's very clear where to get to linear motion on a site with a, a company, from a company that has the kind of range that we do. Sometimes there's a little navigating around. So we have to be a little more careful in um, how we construct our website how we help customers find the right the right information, the stuff that they're looking for. Um, but I, I think, you know, the, the Rexroth approach to having individual technology groups with specialists in the product, but having these people work together with equal specialists at the other technology groups is the best possible combination for a potential customer. Now, it might be that a customer only needs one technology. And so the extra capability that we have isn't as critical to him, and, and he may find that, uh, you know, working with one of our competitors is just fine. Um, you know, most companies that are in our space are extremely good at what they do. It's really not easy to, to claim that you know, this competitor or that competitor is so vastly superior that there is no other choice. And that's what makes all of us better. That's what makes Bosch Rexroth better. We don't take any of our competitors lightly, um, and I'm sure that they don't take us lightly either. So now, let's move on to the manufacturing business. It looks like Bosch Rexroth has a particular approach or philosophy regarding being manufacturing. How would you characterize that as different from your competitors? Not many of our competitors focus heavily on lean. There are a few companies that sell individual framing technologies that can be used in a lean environment. But uh, 
we don't we don't see many of them approaching it on as comprehensive a basis as as we do. I, I think you to a certain degree you're limited by the technologies that you have in your product portfolio. Uh, so if you're, what you're selling is only a framing system, then every solution is going to be a manual solution. Uh, we believe, as I mentioned before, that the type of product you're making, the volume that you're making it in, the, the mix of products that you're making, all combine to define the best approach. And so, you know, we produce for one of our brochures, a kind of, a kind of guidebook brochure about lean, a matrix that has on the one axis a kind of volume scale, uh, and on the other axis a kind of predictability scale. So if you're making the same product all the time in high volumes, that would be the upper right quadrant of this matrix. That's the full automation quadrant because you're making thousands or millions of parts. They're all the same. There's very little variation. And investment in hard-tooled, high-speed manufacturing technologies are probably, it's probably warranted. If, on the other hand, there are some products that you want to make along with those, or you expect uh, some sort of change in the near future to the product that you're making, then you need to take a more flexible approach. You might still need automation for specific processes. Maybe there's a, a high-precision operation that needs to take place that a manual operation just isn't going to be able to do. Uh, maybe there are very small parts or very sensitive parts or, or something like that, uh, you might need automation. But automation can also be combined with manual transfer technologies or different types of conveying technologies, flexible uh, assembly technologies, for example, that allow you to put together a system that works now that can be modified later, reconfigured, uh, parts could be repositioned, um, and it gives you really an opportunity to change as your needs change. And if in the manual case, which would be our lower left quadrant where the volumes are low and there's a high mix of products, there really is very rarely going to be an opportunity that um, automation pays for itself. And so if, if you're in that quadrant, then you need to take a look at um, how best to structure the manual cell, what sort of flexibility to build into it. Um, even in our booth at the trade show today, we demonstrate how you can switch out from making one product to a completely different product in a matter of minutes just by positioning the inventory in the right way and swapping around a couple of cards. So, you know, our approach to lean, I think, is maybe just more comprehensive. And I think we maybe consider things lean that, uh, you know, more traditional lean practitioners don't. Okay. And it looks like another tenet of your lean philosophy is whole production. And I'm curious, what's the best way to forecast market or customer demand if you're trying to create whole production? 
Well, I think actually those two things go hand in hand. Typically, when someone is implementing lean, what they're going to do is called a value stream map, and they'll identify not just where waste is in the system, but also what the so-called tact time, which is a, a German word meaning rhythm, uh, needs to be. In other words, how many parts do I need in a given time increment? Once I've established the time increment, then I set up the, the, the production to, to flow so that it meets that time increment. And the, the pull part of the production means I don't make a part until I get an order. And if I've structured my, if I've structured my production in a sophisticated enough way to meet the tax time requirements, then as that tax time decreases, in other words, I have to start making more products per time increment than before, then I can add a worker to double production in a manual environment. Or I could add some automation that, you know, I can move in and out of a given cell as needed or turn off as needed. Uh, so the, the whole part of it is simply making cars as they're demanded by the tax time. So the production rhythm determines everything. Um, so I think that I think that pretty much covers the. Is it like a sell on demand manufacturing production model, or does it apply to higher volume environments where you know that you're going to need X number of things per day per week? But I guess what I'm getting to is when that customer pull or demand changes, what kind of time increment do you need to be able to adjust to it? Because Sure. Well, then, you know, there's always going to be some variability in there. So, you know, what the, the, the people who plan production nowadays are very smart people. Most of them have been exposed to lean in some, some way, shape, or form. Um, most of them have had, uh, you know, a good number of production rhythm changes, so to speak. And so if they're looking at implementing something new, they should always look at not just what it is their, their, their immediate production cycle is going to be, but what is their, their planned or expected growth curve. And they should specify technologies that can be redeployed or expanded upon or reconfigured to meet those production needs. Uh, and so, you know, in the, the case of Bosch Rexroth, almost everything that we sell on the assembly side is built that way. You know, the, the use of the T-slot of the aluminum extrusion as a framework for all of our technologies means that you can always bolt it together or bolt it apart. Uh, and you know, absolutely right. So you, you simply will um, change it when you need to. The conveyor products are that way. Um, the uh, even the some of the electromechanical actuators, the camel line system, for example, now has a consistent connection technology to the framing product, so you can easily 
take off a pneumatic actuator from a three-axis system, for example, and change it to an electromechanical actuator. Um, so, could you get a little more technical? Sure. Well, the important thing is that, you know, manufacturing engineers need to leave themselves the option to expand, grow, or contract as needed. And, you know, the most important thing is always bang for the buck. You know, nobody needs a super expensive manufacturing system if they're not actually going to use it. That's also where the people flow part comes in. 
Now, there's, you know, in addition, material flow to the cell. So, you know, in the best of all possible cases, you take the value-added work of your uh, cell operator making actual products, and you focus that person on making products. And you don't want them going off doing all kinds of other things. You know, you don't, you don't want him looking for instructions to make the part. You don't want him uh, having to go find a part or a partially made part. You don't want him storing parts that are partially, partially made and batch processing. Um, it leads to errors and, and various faults. So you, you design the cell so that material flows to the cell and through the cell in the, in the work process um, in the most optimum way in order to optimize the flow of your people. So as you're looking at his movements in the cell, you want to design the cell in a way that allows him to end up in the process about where he started. So he doesn't have to walk 10 feet back to where, you know, he started his production. You want, if, you, if your production needs suddenly increase, for example, you want to have a cell that's designed so that you can divide up the eight steps into two sets of four so that you can add another worker and double production um, for whatever length of time that you need to double production. Um, and, you know, maybe you take that person from some other process that isn't currently needed quite that, quite that much. So that's material flow and people flow, and it has to be looked at throughout the, the whole factory because you may be able to take resources from one place and use them in another place and be able to, to sort of move people around to, to get the best results. It's one of the reasons I think that so many lean initiatives focus on the amount of space that a plant requires because as you shrink the space, people are closer to each other. They're able to be moved, you know, in, in spots that are needed and, uh, you know, you're able to identify the needs much more quickly. And that takes us to the information flow piece, which is really a function of how well you, you construct the cell and how you create signals for work to happen in the factory environment. Uh, most lean processes, uh, if, I, if I may, lean on visual signals. And uh, a visual signal might be something as simple as a person who needs more parts holding up a card and somebody delivers more parts. Uh, he may have a, a flow rack, which is a multi-level uh, rack that holds parts containers that feed parts to him as he needs them. The rollers on that cart may have different colors, red, yellow, and green. So as these bins slide down into the red area, a person whose job it is to supply inventory to all of the production cells sees that he needs to return to the, the cell with the, where the parts are starting to be depleted and supply more parts so that the task time, the production rhythm, isn't interrupted. Uh, so it might be information flow might be the way you present information to your workers. Uh, right. right. Do you want a guy flipping through a binder on a desktop or do you want to have something that's at eye level that is, has a very clear statement with simple instructions about what to do? 
that also helps you think through the production process. You know, if you write cryptic instructions or extremely detailed instructions, who's going to be able to follow them? So you need to break down the process into its very bare core. And, you know, for a guy who, who used to be a writer like me, uh, it's sometimes kind of hard to do, but often the workers can help to do this. They're the ones who do these processes every day. And so, you know, you need to engage them in, in developing the process. Uh, if you're putting in new equipment or work cells or redesigning the work cell, they need to be involved uh, because they're the ones, really, who, who live that every day and who are best able to, to tell the management how to do it. It also sounds like implicit in what you're saying, in terms of optimizing resources, which is one, an implicit concept behind it is making best use of the people's time, simply because that's one of the most important components of labor costs. Right. Well, it's... Depending on the level of automation. Sure. Labor cost is an important component, but the, the real trick is making sure that the people who have skills get to use those skills. There is work that machines can do. Machines should be doing that work. There is work that really only humans can do because they're more flexible, they're more adaptable, they're much smarter than machines, they're trainable. And that's what you they're more creative indeed. And that's what you want. Your human your human capacity and your human capital capital to be spending their time on. Well, I guess the information part used at least in my mind to the management side. What kind of organizational communication changes are needed to implement these management? There needs to be a commitment at the top of the organization that this is something that you're going to do. Otherwise, it's very easy for some, you know, for the factory workers and office workers to think of it as a flavor of the month kind of program. Lean is a philosophy. It's a, it's a way of thinking about what you do every day. It's, it implies a kind of commitment to improving it on a continuous basis. And that runs from, you know, that's, a, that's a, absolutely right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, communications, you need to facilitate involvement. You know, it's very easy for someone, you know, for a management team to go, okay, we're going to implement links. And they maybe hold a few workshops and they, you know, do a few projects and say, okay, we implemented links. But nobody really gets it in that organization because lean doesn't stop. Lean is a is a it's a, a system process right. right. It's a system of processes. So you 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 learn to understand and accept and appreciate problems because. When you have a problem, it gives you something to fix. And if you're good at problem solving and using techniques like the, like the five whys, or just asking why five times, you can boil things down to the root cause and prevent that problem from occurring again. So as you, as you identify these problems, you're actually identifying opportunities for continuous improvement. Well, 
And right. Right. It's just asking why five times. And some of these topics actually are covered in our podcast series. Um, so now. I don't think there's going to be a time in which we experience that. Uh, everything can be improved a little bit. So, what we're likely to see is companies getting closer and closer and closer to each other in their ability to compete and produce products. Uh, but we'll see smaller incremental gains from lean improvements than, you know, some of the, the low-hanging fruit that people are gathering up now. Uh, I think there are lots of unexplored frontiers. Uh, looking at lean techniques in an office environment, for example. You know, we talk about information flow again. You know, office workers may not spend a lot of time on the factory floor, but they spend a lot of time looking for information. You know, where is that email that I sent the guy? Where is the email that he sent me? Where can I find that file again on our server? You know, and where is the, how do I, how do I get the information from that company's website that I need to do my job? Where are we storing the engineering drones? So, you know, all of these things uh, people experience every day, and they're, you know, without even really thinking about them as a as a lean problem. It's just kind of the way things are. So that's right. That's absolutely that's absolutely what I'm talking about. Because once you start looking at lean in a more comprehensive way. You can apply it to everything. You know, hospitals are now starting to look at this for managing the flow of patients in and out of their emergency rooms. And if you think about the time that people waste sitting in emergency rooms waiting to see a doctor, you know, those types of applications are, are right for for relief. Okay, I guess on the other side then, what results are reasonable to expect when implementing? Are there any can you give some examples of either customers of yours or a box from that you've implemented Sure. Well, I, let me give a, a kind of simple example. You know, I was, I was involved on a team that was looking at how to improve our, our shipping process and packaging process for shipments going out via UPS and Federal Express. And so we, you know, we, we pulled together a team, and you know, we we did an initial analysis. Uh, you know, we, we took measurements. We, we put, you know, a, a stopwatch on a guy who was pulling a, a, some products to ship to a customer. Um, we had information about the errors that were produced in doing that process. We had information about how much distance he walked in a day. Uh, and he was walking close to 10 miles a day just to complete all of the things required for the shipping process. So you do a spaghetti diagram and you 
you know, when your, your team is sort of gathered up, you look at, okay, what kind of improvement can you get here? So you might even make a, a you know, sort of an initial swag at a, at a, you know, final result. Can we get it down so that this guy is walking, you know, half a mile instead of 10 miles? And, you know, you might find that just by, you know, positioning the tools that he needs to do his job, you can cut it down to 200 yards walked in a day. And so, you know, I, I think this is one of the things that helps people understand the value of it. Because the result, it's a real world example. Right. We were able to reduce the, the errors from, you know, 70 or so in a month to about 15. So, well, by implementing a one-piece flow system. So this was a guy who was, he would put the boxes on a cart and walk around in the stock room and pull the parts and stick them in the box. Well, sometimes he would put the parts in the wrong box and the parts would get shipped to the wrong customer. Um, and so, you know, by, by looking at the process and eliminating opportunities for error and creating things that like like one piece flow, you know, forcing information flow to happen rather than just one guy kind of doing it in his own way um, and creating a system, uh, you create more predictability. And uh, so you have less, less variation, fewer errors, uh, a better process overall, and more satisfied customers, which is uh, the ultimate thing that you're trying to achieve. Well, normally each project, depending on its size, is going to have some kind of a project plan. And, you know, any investment that needs to get made is going to have to go through the same sort of ROI calculations as everything else. So, um, you know, in that particular case, we, we implemented a new work cell. We needed to build it from our own technologies. Um, we had a conveyor that we that we bought from ourselves to bring packages from the stockroom to his area. We um, bought some other new equipment to eliminate some of the lifting that he was doing. Uh, you know, actually moved the process from one area of the factory to another so that it would be shorter. And all of this, you know, requires an investment in manpower and an investment in, in equipment of some kind. And even though, in that case, the equipment costs weren't huge, we still needed to justify them to our, you know, our financial managers. You know, they don't want to just buy stuff just for the sake of buying stuff. But normally, you know, once you evaluate a project and you have it all mapped out on a big wall and you look at where the waste is and how much time can be saved, the ROI calculations pretty much take care of themselves. You look at yourself and you go, why, why are we doing it this way right now? Alternatively, in some ways, and even the way you said it, there are trade-offs. In other words, you can automate a process, um, you know, take some of the manual labor, make that more you know, machine-oriented. However, there's a cost to the machine. In other words, where are the trade-offs and how do you evaluate the trade-offs in implementing those systems? 
some of the trade-offs may have to do with personnel. I mean, in, in the case of the example I just gave you, um, the person who was doing the process wasn't a believer. So he ended up looking for work somewhere else, um, you know, without our sort of provoking that or something, but he saw, you know, outsiders, really, uh, you know, this, this team of, of people descending on his process and reinventing it for him. Uh, and, and sometimes that's going to happen. You know, it's, that's why this communication uh, process that you asked about earlier is so critical, because it needs to be a whole company commitment. If you have, you know, just a few people that don't believe, uh, you know, and they don't really want to make it sound like someone has to drink the Kool-Aid or something like that, um, but if you have a few people that insist on batch processing, that we've always done it this way, so it's the right way. Um, it's, it, it can create problems. If we've been doing something a certain way, and it truly is the right way, it will stand up to the scrutiny of Lean. Okay. In looking at the supply chain, they're heading out farther and farther. And by that, I mean, well, you know, I think that the the overall result is you have more global companies, at least more globally acting companies. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think the reason for that, especially among companies that actively practice lean, is that just as you're optimizing your people flow and information flow, material flow, distance has to be short regardless of whether it's going from my factory to my customer. I'm also the customer to people that I buy from. So they need to shorten the distance from them to me. Now, that distance might be spatial, it might be temporal, uh, but the, you know, the, the, the key to lean in, in this sort of global environment is learning where to position your pieces around the globe, uh, how to shorten pathways everywhere, uh, how to eliminate costs. And now, now we're talking about an area where there really are serious trade-offs because you know, we're talking about people that speak different languages, that may have different understanding of quality control processes uh, that, you know, really are far away from the engineer that designed the product. Uh, so if they're delivering parts that are going to go into his product or if they're making the product that, that he designed or she, you know, those are distances that, that often aren't thought about nowadays because it's just cheaper to make something in a low-cost country. Um, I think, you know, we're all starting to understand in a very visual way um, what some of those problems can be, you know, with dog food and toys and some of those types of things. You know, those are processes that weren't thoroughly thought through. And, uh, the result of it is, you know, someone was buying something because it was cheaper and didn't think about the total cost, which, you know, became enormous once, you know, someone started having to put in quality control checks 
at various places where they didn't exist before. Um, they also began to understand how fast or slow uh, the change process can be when you're, you know, working overseas with, with people that really don't speak your language um, as a native language. So for, for supply chains, I think there's a tremendous opportunity to identify where the waste is, to understand the, the way to optimize all of the travel distances, the knowledge distances, so same thing, material flow, people flow, and information flow to get the best possible results. Part of it sounds like what you're saying is multi-local is the way to go because it shortens the distances in most cases. But are you surprised that that's being worse than true? I'm not am sure. I, am I not hearing that correctly? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what it is. I guess it's different for different products and stuff. Sure. If, if we look at the automotive industry, for example, um, you know, the, the biggest practitioners in Lane are Japanese car makers. Well, who's building car plants in the United States right now? They're getting closer to their customers. And typically, they will pull along additional supplier companies um, to move closer to them. So they're, they're looking at how they can optimize the flow of products to them and to their customers to get as close as possible to this production rhythm. So, you know, I, I don't know enough about things that are, are not manufactured products to, to talk about, like, the delivery of oil or milk or, you know, agricultural products and things like that. In those cases, you know, I, I think there's a, it's probably a slightly different approach because you're not really assembling anything. You're, you're moving products from place to place. And also, talking about an issue as simple as reading the instructions, you're saying they're too detailed, that method, they're too simple, that method. In an international context, in some languages you have to use a lot more words to say the same thing. In some ways, they need not expect more detail, you know, and so on and so on. So, in some ways, I think information resources to is different, more complex, well, yeah, sure. I mean, in the end, you know, it comes down to, you know, how people process information when we're looking at instructions. And there are people who are visual who can easily look at pictures and determine what the process should be from the pictures. There are others who are going to require some words. So you, you can't optimize a process for each individual. So what you would apply is a kind of plan, do, check, act approach to that, so PBCA, in which you, you kind of make a supposition about, you know, how would these instructions work better. Then you make the instructions. Maybe you then test them. You bring a variety of workers from different places. Maybe you send the instructions out to all of the countries where you're manufacturing this part and you have them work with the instructions to see how they work in that environment. And then once you've ascertained that the problems are worked out and these instructions are good, then you act. And you develop the set and deliver the final process to all of the places that you need to deliver it. Um, um, I'm not sure I 
You know, we're an engineering company, and, you know, I think German manufacturing technology companies are often run by engineers. Um, they're, uh, so their products are always outstanding. Um, I think where we see differences are often in approaches to marketing, selling the products, um, you know. Well, you know, I guess kind of. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to say anything that, um, you know, will will be embarrassing about the company. But, you know, we're 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 a German company, but we're a global company, and our headquarters understands that. So, you know, what we often run into things like simple mistranslated items. You know, it's, uh, we we have you know, an English slogan, the drive and control company. All of the technology groups are named in English, linear motion and assembly technology. And in many cases, uh, throughout our corporate documentation set, English is considered to be the language of record because we're a global company. Um, but there are times where some of the translations that we run into are um, not as ultimately effective as we would like them to be. Um, and so that would just be one simple example, um, especially in the marketing of products. A simple, a simple example. We, we have a product in our trade show booth today that we call aluminum structural frame. And that's the, the product um, that, you know, that's the name for the product in our market in the United States. Well, our counterparts were active in almost the invention of using this extruded aluminum technology for structural framing. Um, and when I started with Bosch 17 years ago, the product was called Mechanische Grundelemente in German, or as we translated then, well, basic mechanical elements. So Grund is fundamental here, or basic in this case. At some point over the years, they changed it to mechanic instead of mechanische. So the translation went along, and now they're calling it basic mechanic elements. And you know, I just had a conversation with somebody recently who was telling me it sounds like they you know, cut up a mechanic somewhere and they're piecing up and lying around. Mechanic is a piece of mechanical. Right. And so you know, this is this is what um, we see on the English versions of the catalog. So if something as similar as simple as that can lead to waste, in that we end up making our own catalog. Uh, it's it, you know, it's the right idea, but you know, through capacity constraints and just 
know, getting this reviewed on a worldwide basis, you know, the volume of literature that, that a company like ours needs to produce, um, some of that kind of stuff is going to slip through the cracks. So you identify it, you know. Well, you know, you have a lot of people, and the people make mistakes, and that's, you know, that's the opportunity for improvement. I guess, General, is there anything that we missed about new manufacturing, supply chain management, other international aspects of the Bosch Flexbox? I think uh, there are probably days that we could continue talking about these things, but I think we've covered most of the basics. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michael.